Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasai Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. Enjoy. I'm Trevor Warren, and I'm here with Courtney Brooks. We are MFA creative writing students with Northern Arizona University, and today we are going to be interviewing Dr. Karen Renner. Dr. Renner is a literature professor at NAU and the author of Evil Children in the Popular Imagination, as well as the upcoming Killer Kids, Juvenile Homicide in Popular Culture. Hi, Karen. How are you? Hello. All right. And the first question that we have for you today, Karen, is uh, tell us a little bit about the intellectual journey or inspiration that led you to write the book. So I actually come from a background in 19th century American literature. And so um, I was approached as I was finishing up my degree, I was given the opportunity to guest edit a special issue of a journal. And it was a general uh, interest journal. And so they didn't really give me any guidelines. They just said the requirement was that it had to be kind of a sexy topic, that it had to appeal to a lot of different people. Um, I was really embedded in 19th century American literature, so I think I came up with something like health and illness in 19th century America, and they were just like, no, no, that won't, that won't work. Um, so I really don't remember how I came up with the idea of evil children. Um, I know I have a, I've been watching horror movies since I was young, but somehow stumbled on this idea. They really liked it, so um, I asked for papers, got tons more than I expected was enough to make it a double issue of the journal. And then that got turned into the edited collection that was published by Rutledge. And it was around this time too that, um, I don't know if you guys have noticed, there was just like a glut of movies about evil children, right? Yeah, Yeah, especially just came out, yeah. Right, right, and still going on, right? With Brightburn, I've seen too, um, just having the previews for that. Um, so I think I had just kind of hit a real interest. Um, not only were there movies and books coming out about evil children, but it seems like academics were really interested in that as well. So, um, from there I knew that I wanted to not just edit a collection, but write my own book about it. And so, um, yeah, I just was, I guess, wanting to follow up with my ideas about it rather than just collecting other people's. Cool. And then you said that you've been watching a lot of horror movies since you were young. There is no correlation on the topic at all? Like you didn't have like a fascination with evil children horror movies? Or is that just something that you noticed was like trending and current? Yeah, it wasn't even, I mean, when I proposed the topic, it was, I sort of was thinking about subgenres of horror. And I knew that, you know, slasher films had been done. And I guess I was looking for something that hadn't been done. The minute I said Evil Children, I thought, oh, I'm sure someone's written about this. So I did some research and there was surprisingly little. Um, so I think that I hadn't really paid attention to that genre. I was kind of aware of it, but hadn't really, you know, it wasn't my favorite subgenre or anything like that. It just seemed interesting to me that there were all these movies and no one was writing about it. 
That's fascinating. Yeah, it's an interesting social construct that nobody explores. Mm-hmm. It's evil children, and it's in a lot of different kinds of media, which mm-hmm. is really cool. And there's been a lot of books since, I'd say, like in the past five years. There's actually been a lot of academic books that have come out about it. It's kind of, I think, hitting the end of its wave. But um, yeah, I was just, I think, at the right place at the right time with the topic. Cool. Um, Okay, well, tell us something about your main argument and the contribution it makes. So the book is really, I think, intended to be encyclopedic. So it's not, I wouldn't say it's as argument-driven as it is supposed to serve as a resource for people who are interested in the topic. I think that the way my brain works is I like to collect and then categorize things. I'm not sure why that is. But that's how I approached this book was just... um, I got a list of all of the texts I could think of, kept collecting, and then I started to think about how the big genre broke down into these types. Um, so the book is organized around subgenres of evil children. So I cover types like the monstrous birth, which would include like the Antichrist genre, but also there's movies where uh, women just give birth to a fetus that wants to eat you know, humans or drink human blood or, you know, there's a whole set of films about that. So I have a chapter on monstrous births, one on ghost children, uh, one on gifted children. So, and by gifted, I mean with psychic gifts. So like a Carrie or um, the girl Charlie from Firestarter. So they have some kind of supernatural gift. Also have chapters on feral children, um, possessed children, and then changelings, which I like to think of as Um, perhaps they were children, but they're not children anymore. So like vampire children, zombie children. Um, so the way I approach those is I look at how, like look at the origins of the narrative pattern and then look at how it's changed over time and how those changes might respond to historical changes. So for example, probably the easiest one I can think of because it's the the chapter that I worked on the longest was about the possessed child. And so thinking about the exorcist. Um, Really, I think the possessed child narrative is generally about failed families because a lot of times what happens is the child gets possessed or somehow uh, has contact with a satanic being of some kind because the parents aren't paying enough attention to the child or um, they've allowed them to, to, you know, go unsupervised. And um, I liken that to um, the ways that there's a lot of concern about kids being affected by bad media in some ways. So if parents aren't watching what video games children play or aren't watching what movies they play, then things can go um, wrong. And so in, in The Exorcist, uh, she you know, first encounters the devil because she's left alone to play and she plays with a Ouija board and then gets in touch with the devil. Um, and so I saw that a, a lot of concerns about the possessed child were kind of pairing up with stories about kids encountering violent media or sexualized media, um, satanic messages. I don't know if you guys remember all the stories in the 70s and 80s where it was like there's satanic messages and the heavy metal music and, you know, all of... Exactly, exactly. And then I saw um, a little bit of a change. So contemporary versions, there's um, movies like The Last Exorcism or a movie called The Possession, which was about... um, a box. It was more in Jewish folklore about a Dybbuk box that has a demon in it that possesses a child. But I noticed that contemporary narratives are a lot more concerned about fathers not paying attention to their daughters specifically. And I think that there's 
concerns about how if girls don't get proper attention from their fathers, they may seek male attention in kind of destructive ways. And if you think about the way that the possessed child acts, she's often overly sexualized or, you know, knows things she shouldn't know, especially sexual knowledge. And so um, what I noticed about these films is it was much more concerned about the father's role or the absent father and also concerned weirdly with consumer objects. So in The Last Exorcism, the girl becomes obsessed with the reporter's red boots. So they're kind of like this sexualized object, I don't know, that that um, tells women how to, how they should behave as women, right? But it's very sexually oriented. And so it seems like there's a concern about consumer products sexualizing girls that's sort of being symbolized in these more recent movies. So your book focused mostly on films then? You didn't do, did you do evil children in, in literature or in like other forms of media? I did, well? okay. yeah. So I looked at pretty much any kind of text. So I looked at video games. There's some, um, I know that Courtney's written about uh, Bioshock. Mm -hmm. So the, what are they called? The Little Sisters? Oh, the Little Sisters, yeah. Who so are sort of... Daddies. So, exactly. Yeah. Big daddies. And so the little sisters are sort of possessed. You mm -hmm. can see them because they can be cured, right, yes. from their possession. And so um, I did look at video games a lot with literature um, and then a lot with film. I'm trying to think if there were other texts, television shows, really anything that came up. Um, what I what I, um, how I limited the text, I guess, was by, I made sure that there was a supernatural or at least, at least a supernormal element. So it couldn't be just about a criminal child or, um, I wanted to, yeah, cause that would get too big. So I wanted to limit it in some sort of way. So they're all supernatural narratives. And I guess the weird thing that I learned was that because of these supernatural narratives, there's never really an evil child because there's always some explanation for it. So you have satanic DNA or possession, possession by the devil. So they can always be cured or, yeah. or if they or can't a possibility or if they can't, there's a fault other than a child. Right? Yeah. And they're no longer a child or some, if they can't, you know, a lot of times they've just um, gone too far or something, but it's not just the normal average child who has gone bad. It's some sort of other influence can be blamed. So it wasn't like Josephine and Crooked House. I remember you talked a lot about this book in our true crime fiction class that I took with you. Um, and so it's not as necessarily like Josephine where she's just evil or like just a criminal child. It's like there has to be a supernatural influence as well. Yeah, I limited the book in that way. But yep. you have another book that's upcoming, right? That's e about evil children and criminal children. Specifically, exactly. Right? Okay. Yeah. So what I decided is I had so much stuff that I would split it sort of in half and deal with supernatural narratives and then follow up with another book that's about criminal children. And so the book I'm working on right now that's under contract with uh, University Press of Mississippi is called, right now, um, Killer Kids, Juvenile Homicide in U.S. Popular Culture. And so that one's a little trickier because um, you're dealing a lot of times not only with stories that could be real, but sometimes it's based on real murders and real situations. And so that I feel like I have to deal with a lot more seriously. Not that my first book wasn't serious, but there was a, a way that because it was dealing with supernatural things, it didn't seem as invested in social reality. Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. You could distance yourself a little bit. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. But now I feel like I really need to do a lot more research on, uh, I guess, demographic data is what I'm really interested in. So 
you know, are these stories affected by legal decisions that are made? There were a lot of legal decisions in the 21st century that changed the way we think about children. So they ruled out the death penalty for juveniles. They ruled out life imprisonment with no chance of parole for um, juveniles. So those changes suggest that there's a movement towards thinking children really can't be held as responsible as adults. Um, so I want to see how that impacts the text about evil children. Um, I wonder about size of youth population. So when you have a, a larger population of youth, does that cause anxiety? Is that when all of these sort of texts are generated or produced? Um, things like divorce rates, you know, I mean, they could all play, play a part in how these narratives um, are created and, and what they mean. And I would imagine that socially, um, the focusing more on criminal children would be more realistic and it would be based more on true stories, while other ones are loosely based on true stories that have paranormal elements. Is there a, a way that you're approaching it from that aspect too, because it is involving so many people in their, in their real lives, I guess, real stories? Um, I'm approaching killer kids um, in somewhat a similar fashion in that I've broken it down into subtypes and tried to look at connections between different subtypes and what's going on. So I've seen, for example, a rise in kind of female assassin narratives, which I think are interesting because they're often the assassin is sometimes she's been sexually wronged. And so I think there's concerns um, in those narratives, I mean, what I find interesting about them is how physically adept the, the women are. And I think that uh, was a response to changes or increases in female athleticism. And so I think once women became more athletic, they became more threatening. And so then you get this athletic female who's also going to kill you. Um, and um, in terms of approaching it, I do have a chapter on school shooters, and that will spend a lot of time looking at documentaries and representations of things like Columbine or true crime stories. It also comes up in the child psychopath chapter. There are um, a lot of true crime stories about, or I mean, there were true stories, and now they've become documentaries about uh, children who have killed other children for very strange motives or seemingly no motive at all. Um, and so the, the representation of that is really interesting to me because it's trying to, at the same time that we're getting rid of this idea of the child being responsible, there does it does seem to hint to the idea that a kid could be born just bad and that there's not anything to be done. Like, oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. So then how long... Just because this is, I mean, you had to split your research into two books. How long has have both of these projects, I guess, taken you? How long did it take you to write your first book? I started working on the edited collection pretty much right when I got to Northern Arizona University. So I was finishing it up in 2010. Uh, I think the, the double issue was published through 2011. And then the book came out, I think it was 2013, the edited collection did. And then my book on it, my single authored book came out at the very end of 2016. And so I already had a lot of the research uh, done for the killer kids as well. So I just uh, put together a proposal on that pretty quickly and got that out last summer. And so now it's um, writing it and finishing up. I have some of it written, but 
yeah, I'll be a lot of writing between now and December when it's due. Yeah. Yeah, a little scary. So then going back to evil children in the popular imagination, you were just talking about how it's like a trend or it's like a, mm -hmm. it's, it's spanned over time. How long is that time frame, you think? Um, I think that you can go back in time and find examples, but they really start taking off in the 1950s mm -hmm. where you have things like Lord of the Flies comes out yeah. around them. Um, you have a lot of... Ray Bradbury writes a lot of short stories about evil children, like The Small Assassin or The Velt. Um, there's the famous, you may know the Twilight Zone episode, um, It's a Good Life, where there's a little psychic child who's mm. uh, controlling a whole town. Um, so that's based in a 19... It comes out, I think, a little bit later, but is based in a 1950s short story. So I think around the 50s there was a lot of concern, and that's uh, the same time that you really have youth culture you know, a, a strong kind of sense of teenagers and they have their own culture and concerns about, I guess, what they're doing, mm -hmm. you know, within that culture. And then I saw it really take off again after 2000. Um, I was keeping a running bibliography. I don't know what the numbers are right now, but it's something like I found over 600 films that have some kind of evil child in it. And I think 400 of them at least were made since the year 2000. So oh, two thirds. Wow. Yeah. So it's just grown. And I thought it had gone away, but then I saw preview for Brightburn, mm -hmm. preview for Prodigy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you and talk so, in your book about why, why you think that like, cause I mean, obviously it's been going around since the fifties, but if so many films have been made since 2000, do you talk about why you think that is or... Yeah, I think there's a, you know, I want to be careful about that number because um, the one thing I didn't do was qualify that in terms of movie productions generally. So I think that there's a big change in terms of how many movies can be made. And I expect that with streaming platforms and now Netflix and everybody's making their own movies right. that we just okay. have more opportunities for movies to be right. made. Got it. So I think there's... Um, Part of it is just opportunities. I think the horror genre has become really popular again. Mm -hmm. So, and especially sort of quality. I mean, they call them prestige horror films, but um, that's what I noticed with something like Brightburn. It looks very like it's not just an evil child movie. It's trying to, I don't know, be something a little bit more, kind of be like an elevated horror movie. Um, so I think that's some of it. I also think that there was a movement. So you had a big crime wave through the 90s. Um, and then it's it stops around the mid-90s. And so I think that it could be also kind of the aftermath of that, maybe, that even though the crime wave has gone down, I think there was still a perception that crime, that child crime was up. Mm -hmm. um, Columbine, I don't think, helped. What challenges did you encounter, and what do you think remains unknown, and what future research is, is, is needed in this area? Um, the challenges for me, I suppose, is uh, right now is dealing with how to handle realistic stories. And um, there's one case, for example, where I know the girl is in prison right now. And so how do I write about that and still be respectful to the family um, yeah. who lost a child? Um, and so I've noticed this is a big difference. Uh, I posted, I did a an essay on girls' diaries and how they appear, how they're used in crime cases. So a lot of times there's, you know, there's some sort of shocking entry in a girl's diary that just gets repeated over and over as evidence of her motives or her lack of concern about what she's done. And that was the case with this girl. And I had 
analyzed a documentary in which she appears and posted some clips on YouTube that I could link to in my essay, and people jumped on that. I mean, it was kind of surprising. There was either the she's the devil should go to hell, or there was someone who's kind of got a crush on her. So it just, when it links to something real, it um, opens a lot of doors to, you know, real people's feelings and real people's responses, which I haven't really had to negotiate before. So I think that's probably one of my biggest challenges is figuring out how to be responsible to the topic, but also sensitive um, to the people who it might affect. Um, well, I think the future research is really, I mean, the the next book that I'm working on, I think that when people tend to write about evil children, they do default to these texts that are really well known, which tend to be the supernatural texts. So Carrie or The Exorcist is really popular, or um, The Bad Seed is one potentially realistic text. I mean, it's just about a little girl who's a killer, um, and there's not really supernatural elements to it. So that is one that people will talk about, but they tend to shy away from the realistic texts. And so I think that that is important, um, especially because I think the representations of children in these films could affect public opinion, which then could affect legal decisions that are made or perceptions of real cases. Definitely. I, I think you mentioned in one of my classes that I took with you that you um, that you found research linking it linking at least the perception to like legal stuff surrounding adoption, right? Or there is a, there's a lot of movies in the '80s and '90s which are about the evil adopted child, mm -hmm. and that was that did coincide with increased rates for adoption in terms of foreign adoptions, especially. Um, and it increased. Well, it was, they, they coincided. So oh. you had a lot of movies that were about, you know, concerns about we don't know where this child has come from and the oh. child ends up being, you know, sociopath. I mean, kids can't be sociopaths by definition, but that's how the film depicts them. Um, and so there was a connection there definitely between um, things that were going on in real life, which I think sometimes children were being adopted and they had um, like reactive attachment disorders. So they had either gone through abuse or um, which made them less able to bond with their parents. And I think that that got translated into these films where the child's evil. And so that was really problematic, definitely in that time period. This interview was produced by the staff of Soot, a thin air podcast. If you want to hear more from Dr. Renner, her writing and research journey, and about her upcoming projects, you can find the interview we did with her at thinairmagazine.org slash soot. Thin Air Magazine is Northern Arizona University's graduate-run literary journal. You can follow her journal on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Thin Air Magazine. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Shusai Podcasts. You can find more materials and features from the Society for the History of Children and Youth online, shcy.org.